The last time we got together, we looked at chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, and that was David's kindness to Mephibosheth. Remember, Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, excuse me, who was Saul's son. So Mephibosheth was Saul's grandson. And if you recall, David, before he before Jonathan and before Saul had passed away in their battle with the Philistines, you recall that David and Jonathan met on a couple different occasions. The final one was in the wilderness, um, right before the battle with the Philistines where Saul and Jonathan would lose their life. And remember that David and Jonathan made a covenant, and Jonathan wanted David to make sure that regardless of what happens to him, that David would treat his family and his kin and his tribe and the, and the, and the people of uh, Saul's family, that he would treat them well and that he would remember them and that he wouldn't put them to death. And David honored that vow and honored that commitment. And remember, some time goes by, and then finally David is now king over all of Israel, not only of Judah, but for the other northern ten tribes. And David finally, after he brings the Ark of the Covenant in, after he builds his palace, and after God spoke to him and gave him the great promise that we have, which was recorded for us in the the seventh chapter of this book, we call it the Davidic Covenant, that from David's own seed would come forth, in a sense, Jesus Christ. That through Solomon, through David's seed, and ultimately going on all the way into the millennial reign of Christ, that Jesus Christ would be the one that would come from his seed, from his loins, in a sense. And so David experiences that great blessing. He brings the Ark of the Covenant, and then he's fighting battles, victory, 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 victory after victory. And there comes a point where David says, is there anyone of Saul's house that I could show kindness to? Is there anyone left of Saul's house that I could show kindness to? He didn't need to do that, but David, again, remembering perhaps the covenant that he and Jonathan had made together in that forest perhaps days before Jonathan would ultimately pass away in battle. David's remembering that. And so he does. He, he searches, he diligently searches and finds that Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, who was lame on his feet and unable to walk, he has Mephibosheth brought before him. And Mephibosheth is probably thinking, this is my last day on the earth. And yet David says, no, Mephibosheth. In fact, not only is today... Not that. I want to bless you. I want to encourage you. I want to restore the land of your father to you. And in fact, I'm going to ask Ziba, a servant of Saul, I'm going to ask him and his 15 sons, I think it was 15 or 25 or 35, it doesn't matter after 10, does it? Anyway, so he says, I want his sons to serve you and I want him to till your fields and to do those things that you are unable to do and bring in the food from all of those things and that you would be provided for. And also, Mephibosheth, I want you to sit at my table. I want you to sit at my table, at the king's table for food. I want to put you in that place of prominence. And so David does so. And then finally we come to chapter 10. And chapter 10 is one of those chapters that's really a a list of nations and kings that David had conquered. And in fact, of, of the places that he conquers in this chapter, we really don't read much more of any other other than what's listed here. So let's get right into it. Um, and, and you remember, as we, as we read this chapter, remember that David is expanding his kingdom. Expanding his kingdom. You'll recall back in Genesis 15, there was another covenant that God had made, not with David, but with Abraham. And it was called the Abrahamic covenant. And remember what God said to Abraham. The Lord made a covenant with him, and he says, To your descendants I have given this land, Abraham, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And this river of Egypt is actually a, uh, not the Nile River, many believe, but it's uh, Wadi el-Arish. It's a, it's a town right there in, the, in Goshen, right where the Israelites um, 
uh, were before they left Egypt. And there is a river there, and God had told them back in Genesis 15, he told to Abraham, from that river all the way to the river Euphrates to the east is the land that I'm going to give to you. And let me suggest to you that as you read the scripture, you'll find that David, not, not, not only David, but even Solomon at the height of the Davidic kingdom was really Solomon. And then from then on, it just started to degrade. And so the pinnacle of David's kingdom was in his son. And even under Solomon's reign, when peace was all around and, and, and Solomon had this great wealth of wisdom and understanding and money and gold and silver, that even then, the Israelites never attained to that land that God had given them. They got somewhat expanded and somewhat expanded, but then it just kind of stopped. And, and one thing we have to remember is that when God spoke that to Abraham, I believe he was thinking way beyond, way beyond Israel, way beyond the captivity, way beyond the church age even, already thinking in the millennial reign when certainly that will be the case. The children of Israel will have that land once again. And Jesus will be ruling and reigning for a thousand years, along with all of us in our glorified bodies in Jerusalem, on this earth, on this earth, for a thousand years. What do you think about that? It's kind of exciting to think about, isn't it? It's not exciting to think about in these bodies, but it's exciting to think about living a thousand years in, with him on the throne. Guess what? No more of this nonsense of elections. No more people who can't speak in front of the microphone. Nobody who can do all, you know, all of this stuff. No more of that. There's going to be Almighty God on the throne. Amen? Are you excited about that? Because, folks, that's our destiny. That's what's happening. That's what's happening. And so they hadn't even attained all this. So David is going to be starting here, and Solomon's going to expand it. A little bit more, but not by much. And ultimately that will be realized in the millennial reign. But let's look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Notice what it says. It says, it happened after this. And after this, after what? After this um, chapter 9 where David blessed Mephibosheth. It says, it happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. Now remember, Ammon is the name of Lot's son. Remember in Genesis 19, when God brought Lot and his, his daughters and his wife out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And remember, his wife turned around and she became a pillar of salt because her heart was more towards Sodom than being delivered from Sodom. And so Lot and his two daughters, they escape. And they escape ultimately to a mountain where the girls, being fearful... They get their father drunk, and they each have an incestuous relationship with their father under the influence of wine. And they both give birth to sons. And the first one was Moab, and the second one was Ben-Ami, or the children of Ammon. And so when we speak here of this king of the people of Ammon died, we, we have to understand that the Ammonites, the people who came from Ammon, were an enemy to Israel. They, they came against Israel. They were always a thorn in their flesh. You can go back in Deuteronomy chapter 2 and you can read about how when God brought them into the promised land, God gave to the Ammonites land. And God told them to leave the Israelites to leave them alone. And so they did. They left them alone. But later on, because of idolatry, the Ammonites would um, rise up and there would be uh, battles between the Israelites and the Ammonites and they became an enemy of Israel just as they did the Moabites. And so this king of the people of Ammon died and his son Hanun reigned in his place. And then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. Now what's And so David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father's death and David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. Now, one thing you have to understand is the Scripture is completely silent about this, whatever Ammon, or whatever um, uh, this king who had died, what he did for David. Because notice what David says, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash. So whatever, the, the Bible doesn't tell us what Nahash did. 
that David would make a comment like this, that his father showed kindness to him. We really don't know. It's not written in the Scripture. And so we have to be silent as what that is. It may have been a, just some favor that he did. We don't really know, and it doesn't really matter. But it does record, the Bible does, why there would be animosity between the Ammonites. You remember in 1 Samuel chapter 11, while Saul was still king, that the Ammonites came against Jabesh-Gilead. Jabesh-Gilead was that town on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And the Ammonites came and, and were um, fighting with them and wanting to remove their eyes, <laughs> the right eyes of all the men. And you recall, they, they cried out to Saul and his armies. And Saul, this is, in my opinion, was probably the highlight of Saul's career because he comes to the aid of the men of Jabesh-Gilead from the tribe on the other side of the Jordan. And they actually win this great battle against the Ammonites. And they basically snuff them out. They, they win the battle uh, decisively. And so obviously there is still some animosity because that event happened you know, prior to David coming into his kingdom. So it couldn't have been that far away. So there is animosity between them. And notice in verse 3, the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanun, their Lord, do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? And so these servants of Hanun are talking to him and trying to, you know, dissuade him from this idea, the, you know, David's overtures that he's making in, in kindness. And it's too bad they didn't listen to him. And maybe they had every right to not listen to David because of the animosity. But David, it appears, was just trying to be kind. There's, there's nothing in the scripture that we know of that states that he was doing this to be sly and trying to deceive them. We know that that's not beyond David, but there's no reason that he would do that. But the men pers you know, persuaded the king, this young king. It reminds me of a time in the Old Testament, actually, it would be even further down in history from where we're at now after Solomon was on the throne for 40 years. Remember, after Solomon died, whose son reigned in his stead? Rehoboam, right? Remember Rehoboam? And it says that Rehoboam rejected the advice which the elders had given him and consulted the young men, rather, who had grown up with him, who stood before him. And he said to them, What advice do you give? How should we answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us. And the young man who had grown up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus shall you speak to this people who have spoken to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you, have made it, but you make it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, My little fingers shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. And my father, as my father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. <coughs> so now we have another king, another young king. Instead of listening to the ancients, listening to those who are older than him, instead he listens to the young men who grew up with him. And how history in Israel would have changed if that were the case. If, he, if they would have just listened to those who had a lot more experience, who would understand, who understood Solomon's heart and had grown up and had been through many things, there's a great wisdom in listening to those who are older in the Lord than us and sometimes even just older in age. You know, are you willing to learn from somebody who's older than you that might not even know the Lord? It's important for us to be willing to do that, to listen to their wisdom. And there may be some good wisdom, but we, as, as with all things, we have to take that wisdom and we have to filter it through the Holy Spirit. We have to filter it through the Word of God, and then we decide whether this is good counsel or not, right? We have to do that with everything. You have to do that with the news that you read. And how things would have been different for these, this group of people had they just listened, or not listened, to his counsel and just received David's overture of kindness. So verse 4, Therefore Hanun took David's servants. Instead of thanking them for their kindness and generosity, what did they do? They shaved off half of their beards. 
They cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks and sent them away. So here you've got a bunch of beardless guys walking around with nothing on from the waist down. And in, in that time, especially, to shave off a man's beard and to do what they did to them was a great shame, a great shame. And basically what it was is an act of war. And if you know anything about David and his temperament, we've seen earlier in David's history that when he went to Nabal, remember? <laughs> and he was blessing Nabal by providing protection for Nabal's flocks. And all he wanted was to have some food for him and his men because Nabal was so wealthy and Nabal wouldn't have anything to do with it. And in fact, scorned David and David was going to go after him. Because it was just, culturally, it was just a very awful thing to do. And remember that it was Abigail who spared Nabal, at least for a couple days. The Lord got a hold of Nabal. But he, he withstood his hand from destroying Nabal. And so when David is shunned of his kindness, that, that is something that he didn't take very lightly. And certainly in the Middle East, that was just a no-no. That was just very unusual. So verse 5, when they told David about what they had done to these men, these ambassadors, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed, naturally. And the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. Because what they would do is uh, over there on the eastern side of the Jordan River is where the Ammonites live. So they would cross over the Jordan just north of the Dead Sea and Jericho is just a few miles uh, to the east of the Dead Sea. So David says, wait there until your beards have grown. And when the people of Ammon, verse 6, saw that they had made themselves repulsive or to stink to David, the people of Ammon sent and they hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Maacah, 1,000 men, and from Ishtab, 12,000 men. Now, you might want to write in your Bibles in the margin a uh, reference here, and that is 1 Chronicles chapter 19, verse 7. One of the things that you have to, um, well, actually, I'll get to that. <laughs> it says that this place where the, all these men gathered, and, and these were the Aramean tribes, uh, north of Israel, in modern-day Syria today. And so way, way north of like um, the Sea of Galilee, way north of that, you had these different tribes, these different groups of people, Zoba and Beth Rehob and Maacah and Taob, and they were um, part of the Aramaeans. And, the, and so this battle was about ready to take place. And they all came together. It tells us in 1 Chronicles 19.7 that this place that they encamped was Medeba or Medeba. And this place is just east of the Dead Sea, the northern tip of the Dead Sea. If you go east, um, about 10 or 15 miles, you'll run into this place. And this is where they had met. And so verse 7, Now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. And then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate of the city of Medeba. And the Syrians of Zobah, Beth Rehob, and Ishtab, and Maacah, these are, again, these uh, uh, people groups from, uh, that are on the eastern side of the Jordan River, uh, all the way up north of, uh, higher than, uh, north of Galilee, excuse me, they came and they were by themselves in the field, it says. And then verse 9, it says, When Joab saw that the battle line was against him, before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother. Remember, Abishai was Joab's brother. Remember, Asahel was also Joab's brother. And who was he killed by? Yes, Abner. Abner killed him, uh, Saul's uh, commander of his army. And then Joab killed Abner in cold blood in a city of refuge in Hebron. And, uh, and so all, all he's got left is his brother Abishai. So they set them in array against the people of Ammon. So now you got these two brothers dividing the army, going after different segments of this Aramean assault from the north. And so verse 11, then he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come 
and I will help you. But be of good courage, and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what is good in his sight. And I love that about Joab, even though he was a a, a bloody man, meaning that he had blood on his hands. He was a very different man than David was. Uh, Joab was a bloodthirsty guy. We're going to see that as we go along. He's just a vicious individual, um, very unlike his, his, uh, his uncle, David. And so Joab and the rest of the people who were with him, they drew near for the battle against the Syrians. And notice, the Syrians fled before him. And when the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai. So they divided and they conquered. When Joab saw the battle was before him and behind him, the the, the army just split in half. Joab went with one, and Abishai went with the other group. And the Syrians fled. And then once the Syrians fled, the others fled. And so when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, um, oh, I'm sorry, I I skipped a verse here, verse 14. It says, when the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered into the city. Again, this is probably Medeba, um, according to 1 Chronicles 19.7. And so Joab then returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. In verse 15, it says, When the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered again. And, and this is true even in the Middle East today. It, it, de- being defeated in a battle is not something any of them take lightly. And uh, there's, a, there's an everlasting hatred even today among the Philistines or, or those who call themselves Philistines or, or, or um, Palestinians and, and Israel. There's always this everlasting hatred going back several centuries. And so then, verse 16, it says, Hadadezer, he sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river, beyond the river Euphrates, and they came to Helam, and Shobak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, went before him. This place called Helam was the next battle that they were going to encounter, and this place is literally about 40 miles due east of the Sea of Galilee, uh, just straight, straight right across is where this place was. And so it says, when it was told David that they had regathered themselves, that David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan. Now he's going from west to east, crossing over. And he came to Helam, and the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David, and they fought with him. And notice what it says in verse 18. The Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians and struck Shobach, the commander of their army, who died there. Now, one of the interesting things and one of the most difficult things about the book of Samuel, and even in the Old Testament, when you get into First and Second Samuel, you get into Kings and Chronicles, especially Kings and, and Samuel, you'll find that there is a lot of discrepancy in your Bibles. If you do any studying about numbers in these chapters or in these books specifically, there is um, always a discrepancy usually with numbers, okay? And the part of the reason for that is, and I, if, I had, um, if I could show you on the screen, I would, but I didn't have it ready for you tonight. But certain Hebrew letters, all it takes is one little, one little marking of a Hebrew, over a Hebrew letter or a number, and it makes it, it turns it into something different. And so as the scribes, as they were copying over the, over the centuries, as they were copying the scrolls and copying the original manuscripts, there came some corruption in that, in the, in the, in the displaying of numbers. Now, numbers don't really change any of our doctrine, okay? So don't get upset and when you find in the Bible that it says, this number in, in 2 Samuel, and then you look over in 1 Chronicles and it gives you a different number. A lot of times this is just corruption in the copies. But usually, in Chronicles especially, uh, because it is a more um, stable document, the documents were much more stable than the, the ones of Samuel, um, those are probably more uh, authoritative. And so we can kind of go by that instead of what we see here. And let me give you what I mean here. And you might want to write off on verse 18 here, right off to the side, 1 Chronicles 19, verse 18. And here's why. And again, this is just a, we're just kind of going by this, but I think it's worth mentioning. 
because you're going to find it, and you might find yourself getting discouraged and think, oh, the Scripture is not inspired, it's not correct, and all that stuff. Well, it really is. The, the problem is not with the originals, which don't reside with us anymore. We have copies, especially of the Old Testament. We have copies. And so when those copies were made, and if you understand anything about the way the Jews transcribe documents, it is ridiculously thorough. So thorough that if they make one mistake, they throw the whole thing out. All right? So that's how serious they take them. But in 1 Chronicles 9, verse 19, verse 18, it says, speaking of this very same passage, it's a parallel account. It says, The Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 7,000 charioteers. But here in our verse, it says 700 charioteers. Can you understand how just one little, one little tittle, they call them, a jot or a tittle, or a little marking over that number can change it dramatically. And you're going to see that at different times in the Scripture. So don't let it throw you because doctrine is not uh, built upon numbers. It's built upon content, <laughs> right? And so don't be discouraged by that. And this, uh, the Chronicles document is much more reliable than the first and second Samuel who, whose numbers especially have seen some um, corruption. So back in our text now, verse 19, it says, When all these kings who were servants to Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. And so the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. They got soundly beaten by David. Soundly beaten. And again, remember that when David came into power, the kingdom of Saul was decreasing but David's was increasing, right? And David is just on this incredible roll. From the moment he becomes king, he's winning battles. He's got the ark now. God has given him great and wonderful promises. He's winning battles left and right, conquering land, conquering kings. Things are going great. I would, I'd be willing to say this is probably the pinnacle of his experience as king, perhaps. He's got everything he wants. Everything is going really well. Victories are being gotten. God is blessing. And wouldn't you know it, <laughs> that it's at a time like that, that's when the devil comes in. Very seldom when we're in down and out and we're, we're really hurting. He, he likes to attack us at that time too, uh, during times of discouragement, and he likes to continue beating on us and condemning us, but especially when we're at a, a spiritual high, when we have experienced some spiritual victory, or even a victory in anything in your life, anything that brings happiness to you. It could even be a, a really great raise in your job, a promotion, you know, your kids, your wife, everything is going well. And, and when things are going well, folks, and you know this from experience, those are the times you really got to be praying and being on your guard. Be on your guard when things are going well. You know, if you're like me, and this is true of myself, I'll admit it, when things are going well, I get lazy, I get lax. I like to sit back on the hammock with my iced tea. That's what I like to do when things are going well, and actually I do do that. <laughs> Those are the times that we've got to be really careful, and this is what happened to David. And so as we get into chapter 11 tonight, this is probably one of the few times in David's life that I think were his worst. We saw when he made his, this affinity, this friendship with the Philistines. Remember the insanity that he went through when he was actually working for the, the king of the Philistines. Remember that before he became king and Saul was still on the throne? Right before that final battle, David was at his utmost in his lunacy even threatening to go with the Philistine army to go down and attack. He would have been part of the same army that was fighting against Saul and Jonathan, his best friend, had God not intervened and had not the lords of the Philistines says, look, he's a Hebrew. When we get into battle, he's going to turn. We know that. He can't go with us. And so the king sent him down to Ziklag, remember? About 80 miles south of that. But this is one of David's moments was not his best. Just like that time in his life when he was deceiving and playing the madman and acting like 
he was on the Philistine side. Now we've got another issue, another moment in his life that he would just love to erase with a pencil. Perhaps the worst moment in his life. Was, was, it, was it when he was down and out? Or was it when he was on top of the world? He was on top of the world. When you, everything is going well, be so careful. Be so careful. In fact, if I could title this chapter, I would, I would title it one of two titles. I would title it, Your Sin Will Always Find You Out, or Two Wrongs Don't Make a Right. And I'll explain what that means when we get into it. Two wrongs don't make a right. And so let's read it. Verse 1, this chapter that makes all men cringe. And let me suggest to you that, ladies, I, I'm going to share some things tonight that I think you ought to consider as well. Usually when we read a chapter like this, 2 Samuel 11, it's about adultery, which of course it is, and about David's lust and David's uh, problem. But I want to encourage you too that Bathsheba, although the scripture doesn't is silent, um, there's some things that I think she, was, she should have considered very carefully before she did what she did. But David, no doubt, carries the vast brunt of this disaster. But I don't think she was completely as discreet as she could have been. And we'll look at that as we go. But notice in verse 1, it says, It happened, and we'll get through as much of this as we can, and next week we'll go through the rest of the balance of this chapter and get into chapter 12 as well. It says, It happened in the spring of the year at that time, notice, when the kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. At the time when kings go out to battle, what is the meaning of this phrase? When kings go out to battle, it's very different today. Because we've got, we, we can bomb anybody in the middle of the night. It doesn't matter if there's a rainstorm or whatever. Our technology is such we can do that. But back at this time, when kings would go to battle against each other, they wanted to do it at a time of year that was conducive for battle, where both sides could maneuver and do what they needed to do without being hindered by uh, rainfall and, 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 and elements, the elements, the weather and the seasons that would actually work against them. How can you drive a chariot in a valley when during the rainy season? You just wouldn't do that. And so they would actually wait until the time was seasonal for them to go out to battle. The, then, then everybody would be on equal footing, so to speak. And so notice that they destroyed the people of Ammon. Wasn't that what we were just talking about in chapter 10? The people of Ammon? And David destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, which was the capital city of the Ammonites. Today it's called Ammon, or Ammon, Jordan. That's exactly where this place is. Today, it is called Amman, Jordan. But that was the ancient city of Rabbah at this time. And remember, the people of Ammon were enemies of Israel. And again, this was just to the east of the Jordan River, about 10 or 15 miles. Um, And it is modern-day Amman, Jordan. So Joab and his armies, they besieged Rabbah for about two years, we believe, before they finally destroyed it. We'll see that at the end of chapter 12. But whenever armies would go against a city, sometimes they would just go and overwhelm it and destroy it with their military might. Other times, as we see what Nebuchadnezzar did with the, with Jerusalem, what did he do? He didn't just go after it and just because it was a pretty fortified city. So what they would do is they would just surround the city with uh, the whole army and just wait. Because the people got no water. Of course, Israel did because they had the Gahon Spring, but they had no food. And so they'd cut off the spring from its outside source if they could. And then they waited. And they just waited until people died. They died of starvation. And that's what besieging a city did. There's no casualties. Or at least, you know, the army on the outside, they're eating, having campfires at night, eating animals and, and living just fine. The people on the inside of Jerusalem, they're dying. They're getting weak. And they just wait until 
nature takes over, and then they, they basically go in and clean up. So this siege lasted for over two years as Joab and them would go against the city of Rabbah, the Ammonites. So it wasn't just something they did. These men were gone for months at a time, besieging that city, just waiting, waiting and waiting and waiting. And this place called Rabbah, it actually had two parts to the city. There was an upper city, which was called the Acropolis, known as the Royal City. And then there was a lower city, which is um, right between two wadis, which is basically an area in the mountains where the water would flow from the mountains, and it just created kind of like a ravine. And in the dry seasons, it would just look like a river or a dried-up riverbed, but in the rainy season, that's where the water would come down. And this city sat right in the middle of it. There was a top part called the Acropolis or the Royal City, and then the City of Waters down at the lower part of the city. They were connected by a, uh, a conduit passage uh, between the two of them. But as we read that first verse, a question you have to ask yourself is, is why is David, why was he staying behind and why was he not out with his troops? Was he getting older? Was he more of a liability as as he began to get older? Was he not the young guy that he used to be? We don't really know, but he stayed behind and who knows, maybe the, the army of Israel had become so pronounced at this time and so great that they're thinking to themselves, you know, we don't need David. Let's protect him and just keep him. We can take care of this. And so who knows what it is. But nonetheless, David stays back. And notice verse 2, Then it happened one evening that a David rose from his bed, and he walked on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing. He saw a woman. Underline the word saw because we're going to get to that. He saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. And again, we have to be very careful. It's usually when we have this idle time. David had this idle time, had this time on his hands, and that's usually the devil's playground. Idle, or idle time is the devil's playground, the, the phrase says. And so here David is, and the devil had a lot of time to study and take notes on David. He knew exactly where David's Achilles heel was and is. And the devil knows you. I don't like to think about what the devil knows, to be honest with you. I really don't care what he knows about me. Because I, I care more that God is in control and I am um, impervious to anything that the devil wants to do unless God allows it for some reason. But know this that the devil has studied each of you. You don't need to be afraid of him, especially if you're in Christ. You don't have to fear him. But he knows you. He's had a long time to study you. And believe me, he's got volumes written, I'm sure, about each of us. The things that are our Achilles heel, the things that he knows, he's watched, he observed, he's planted the trap before and it worked every single time. Every single time. And then we've never repented. He comes back again and again with the same old bag of tricks. And he does the same thing over and over again. And we fall for the same thing. He doesn't need to bring out the big guns because he knows that the little guns will work just fine. He doesn't need to bring out the big things. Usually he gets everybody with either by encouraging them to be filled with pride or lusting for money or sex or drugs and alcohol. Usually those are the things that kill people. Usually those are the things that destroy lives outside of the church and inside of the church. But what does Peter tell us in his letter in chapter 5, verse 8? He says, be sober. He tells us that. And tonight we need to be sober. We need to be vigilant. Why? Because our adversary, the devil, he's walking about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. <laughs> and that is true for us. Resist him. Resist him, and he will flee. Didn't he flee when he tempted Jesus in the Judean desert for 40 days and 40 nights when he was thirsty and hungry? He did. And every time the devil brought an accusation, even using the word of God, which Jesus inspired, 
He came against them with the word of God, and what did Jesus do? Did he reply back with, hey, get out of my face? No, he replied back with the very same word in the right context and defeated him with words. Defeated him with the word of God, and that says the devil left him, and then angels ministered to him. And so he is a roaring lion, and he's feeding on a lot of flesh today. He's feeding a lot on the world. Those are the easy things. Those are, the, those are the, the world and those outside of the church are those wounded gazelles that are, that are in the very back of the pack. And the, the gazelles are running across the safari and, and you got these few whose hamstrings have been wounded and they can't run very fast. That's what the world is. They're easy. And the devil goes after them. And he's, it's easy. Ah, but the Christian... He goes after us too. He can't take our salvation away. The Satan knows that. He can't take our salvation, but oh, how he loves to mar the witness and to destroy the heart of a Christian. He can't take your salvation away, but he can take your family away. He can take your job away. He can take your assurance of salvation. Notice I didn't say he, he can't take away your salvation, but your assurance is going to be shaken because you have fallen And when you fall enough, you begin to think and you listen to the devil's lies when he says, are you sure you're one of his? You've been falling for the same thing for ever since I've known you, the devil says. Every time I come at you, you fall like a deck of cards. And then we have no assurance because we haven't resisted him. We haven't prayed and got on our knees and and cried out to God and really fasted if necessary and say, Lord, deliver me from this thing, whatever it is. Every one of us in this room have some Achilles heel of something. Have you prayed about it? Are you resisting him? Or are you just caving in and just asking God to forgive you? Yes, he will forgive you. Forgive you he does when a child of God turns and, and confesses it. But what we need is the gift of repentance too. The gift of repentance is more than just asking God to forgive me, and God does forgive. That's his promise to you if you confess it. But there's something even greater, and you can say, Lord, give me the gift of repentance. Give me the gift so that I don't want to do this again, that when I'm, uh, when I, when I'm approached by this very same thing again, I understand through experience that all it does is bring me heartache. It brings me heartache, and I feel awful. So, The next time you fall for that thing that you've been falling for at different times in your life, think about this. (laughs) And I know you do, because I do. You think to yourself, you know what? I remember how it feels when I fail. I don't want to do that again. I'm sick of that feeling. I'm sick of that experience. I'm sick of taking my relationship with Christ for the moment, for whatever it is, and crumpling it up and throwing it off to the side. I'm tired of doing that. Are you tired of doing that? The devil knows. But greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Don't be worried about what he, what he knows. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. And he's certainly not omnipresent. But does he know you? Yes, he does. He does. But I'm so glad that someone knows me a lot better than he does. And I'm so glad that we have an advocate, Jesus. Amen? Yes. So... David, again, probably at the height of his, of his kingdom at this time. And notice, he was established, he was secure, he was famous. He was a guitarist. Well, he was a harpist, but I call him, it's, a, it's an old-fashioned guitar is really what it is. So he was a guitarist, he was a songwriter, probably handsome guy, red hair. God was blessing him. He had everything he needed and probably everything that he wanted. I almost wonder if this night when he was on, at his palace... And he gets up and he walks out. For some reason, he's trying to sleep and he's restless. I almost wonder if the devil was just goading him. I almost wonder if God was allowing it. Isn't that scary how God can allow that to happen? You may not like that idea, but in Job it's true. God sometimes allows us. He tests us. Not not to tempt us to to sin, but he allows us to be tested Because God already knows what we're going to do, but we don't. I can speak a big game all I want, but only God knows truly how I would respond when faced with certain circumstances. And so I wonder if David that night as he's laying in bed, he just can't sleep. He's just 
turning and turning and turning. And finally, he's like, oh, give me a break. And he says, well, I'll just go up and walk around on the top of my palace and just get some fresh air as the moon is coming down. And I'll just look up at the sky and remember those days when I was in the field with the sheep when I was a young kid. So David goes out there. And the devil, he's always trying to ensnare the man or woman of God. That's why it says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, it says, The exhortation is, See then that you walk circumspectly. Walk as if you... As if everybody's watching. And know that as you do walk in this earth, Christian, that there are people watching us, right? And they have a right to watch us because we're telling them about this wonderful Savior of ours. So they are watching. And don't be discouraged when you fall. You just confess and you get back up again. But you know what? The devil just wants to pound us. He, 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 he just wants to beat us and tell us that we're no good. But don't you listen to him. The righteous man falls seven times and he gets right back up again. But Satan loves to destroy the witness, the credibility, the lives of Christian men, especially in positions of leadership. And certainly David, as the king of Israel, he was in a very great position of leadership. You know, over the decades in America, uh, in America and abroad, there have been many pastors who have fallen into sexual sins and sins relating to money and extortion and fraud and all these other things. And I would encourage you, you know, it's really important to pray for those in spiritual leadership positions in the church, whether they be pastors, teachers, worship leaders, Sunday school teachers, or even just business men and women working in the world. Pray for each other. Pray for each other. We need to be prayed for. And we pray for you. And don't think that you don't need it. Because what is that passage that we read in 1 Peter? He's, the devil is like a roaring lion. He's always seeking. Guys, when you're at your job, what about that cute secretary? How often are you there alone when all the other workers are not around? What are you doing? Are you sitting and talking to her? Are you letting her cry on your shoulder? You better be very careful. When you go on business trips and you've got a female colleague who's in a different room and you're a married man, what are you thinking about? What happens, especially if she finds you attractive? What are you doing? What are you thinking? What opportunities are being made available? And David was, he was like a sitting duck here. He'd gotten up and he's roaming around the top of his palace Do you remember that, the movie, The Lord of the Rings? There was a time, <laughs> and I was just reminded of this, when Frodo and Samwise Gamgee, where they were walking and they were getting lost, and they were in the, in the mountains and they were getting lost, and there came a point where Frodo looked at Samwise and he says, we're being watched. We're being watched. And that's really what we are. We're being watched. And again, not to spook you, I've spent enough time on this. But... It is true. We are being watched, but thank God we, are, we have one who is watching over us. And don't find this unusual, because remember in Job chapter 1, and this is a doctrine that people don't like to talk about, but it is true. And it's that God will allow sometimes for us to be tempted and to, and to be chastened. It says, There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come from? And Satan, notice, Satan's actually able to present himself in heaven. Did you know that's still true today? He's able to blaspheme you. He's able to bring accusations against you. And he doesn't do it from hell. Oh no, he's very active in the world, and he can ascend to heaven. There's coming a time where he won't be able to ascend to heaven anymore. But he accuses you before the Lord. So he, at this time, he goes and, he, and the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? <laughs> that there is none like him in all the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. God knew who, who Job was. He knew he was a really wonderful man. But the, the wonderful man had to go through a testing to really reveal how great that was. Job needed to know that for himself. Again, if, if, if things are going well for me all the time, I usually don't grow. I'm, I, I get lazy. 
And I'm not saying that Job was lazy, and maybe you're not lazy, but the average person is. We get used to things, we get lazy, we get lax. But the Lord knew Job, and also God knew what Job was going to be like on the other side of this great trial that he would go through. And what, what did Satan answer him? Satan answered and says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not set a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the guy. You've blessed the work of his hands, his possessions, have increased in the land. But now stretch your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Ah, and the Lord said to Satan, Hey, behold, all that, is in, that he has is in your power only. Notice, here is the leash that's put on Satan. Only do not lay a hand on his person. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. He did that very thing, didn't he? He took his whole family away by disasters after disasters. And he even, we'll find out in chapter 2, that he finally lays his, or chapter 4, or chapter 2, even Job is struck with the boils and the things that he went through. And you may think to yourself, how could a loving God do that? Well, Job was a great man. Job was a great man. But Job needed to go through what he, needed, what he went through because God was refining him. I'm usually not refined when, I'm, when everything is going great. I'm usually refined when things are going really hard and I feel like I'm just at the end of my rope. Have you found yourself at the end of the rope? Don't be discouraged because what God is doing is refining your faith. He knows our faith. He knows exactly where I am and where I am not. I don't know that until I go through certain things and God says, ah, you thought you were that, Rob. And guess what? You, really, you learned something, didn't you? And I'm like, yes, Lord. I learned that I really wasn't all I thought I was. I realized that I wasn't as strong in that area as I thought I was. And God says, you know what? That's okay. Because next time, I know that you'll know. And you'll rely more upon me. And there, isn't that where the victory is? See, we don't know ourselves. And God was going to do something in Job's life that at the end of all of this, he would just totally magnify the man. He would be vindicated in front of his friends who saw him as just a self-righteous man. He'd be vindicated before the devil. <laughs> and he hates that. You know, sometimes God gives you a discerning, gives you discernment and eyes to see things. Even maybe a word of knowledge concerning how Satan is setting up someone in your life, perhaps even setting you up, giving you understanding, giving you a word of knowledge, giving you discernment to see things as he sees them, and pray for that in the days we live in, that God will give you great discernment, first for yourself and for others, that you could discern what the devil is trying to do and how he's trying to set you up. Because believe me, he is trying at this moment. He is trying to set you up. But don't worry about him, even though I've talked a lot about him tonight. Um, but this is a passage we have to look at, and we have to be sober and be vigilant, like Peter tells us, right? There's a, in Proverbs, Solomon wrote, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it comes forth the issues of life. The word keep is so wonderful. What it means is to literally guard it, to maintain it, to, um, to preserve it, to sustain it, to watch over it. And that requires diligence. It's not just, you know, keep your heart. Well, what does that mean? Well, you keep it with diligence. You think about what you're doing. Be always thoughtful and be always prayerful, especially when things are going really great and things are just kind of moving along and things are just going like cake. Those are the times that usually the devil likes to come in with a baseball bat and just wipe my shins away and knock me on the floor when I'm just soaring like, an, soaring like an eagle. And I've noticed it even in our times together at church. Did you ever notice that after we went out and witnessed in the, into, the, into the communities, did any of you recognize that after that was over with, how you felt this great sense of, you know, hey, I, did, you know, I was glad to do this. It was a good thing for me to do. And did any of you experience some hardship or some kind of devastation, <laughs> some kind of trial that happened in your life? Something difficult. These things do happen. But notice in verse 2 that it happened that evening that he was walking around. Notice from the roof he saw a woman. And I had you underline that for a reason. Because this wasn't just something where David was looking around and just saw Bathsheba. Because guess what? All of um, David's generals 
those 30 mighty men of David's, do you think that they lived near the, near the palace? You better believe they did. They were surrounding David and all their homes. And Uriah was one of his 30 men, 30 mighty men. And, who is, and, and, and Uriah is out in battle. He's across the Jordan River uh, in a siege against Rabbah, modern-day Ammon. <laughs> and so David's there, and his wife's up there bathing. She's up there bathing, and David saw her. It's not just he glanced over, oh my gosh, I'm going back inside. No, did David do that? No, he, he gave. He saw her. In the Hebrew, the word means to stare or to gaze upon or inspect. He was checking her out. He was watching her. And the wheels are starting to spin. Wow, she hasn't seen Uriah in months. He hasn't been around in months. She's a lonely girl. And Bathsheba's thinking, I'm a lonely girl. I haven't seen my husband in so long. And David commits adultery in his heart because of that word, saw. You understand? Guys, you know what I mean. There's one thing when you see somebody and you... You see this all the time as I'm driving down five-mile line on my way home from church or on my way to church on Sunday morning. There'll be a young lady, you know, jogging, and it's like I see her, and I see her, and I just keep going. But if I look at her, and guys, you know what I mean, there's that extra long stare. Now there's something different happening. I've engaged in this sin of adultery in my heart, right? Didn't Jesus say that in Matthew's Gospel? He says, you've heard that it was said to those, you, have not, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust with her, and this is true for you ladies too. You may see some handsome, dark, you know, tall, dark, and handsome hunk. You know, is physically fit, dresses really nice, smells nice too. Wow, drives a nice car. Seems like he's got it all together, just he's very smooth and he's got that nice voice. He can even sing and he's a guitar player on top of it. I mean, He's in a band. You know. No, I'm only kidding. He's... But what did Jesus say? So, ladies, this is true for you too. Whoever looks at a woman or a man to lust for him or her has already committed adultery with her or him in his heart. If your right hand causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. And you know the, the situation here. We don't need to finish reading that verse, but Jesus is not saying literally take out your eye and cast it from me because if sin is in the heart, you can take the eye out all you want and you can remember something. And your heart can still be filled with lust even though you can't see. You can remember. As long as you've got a brain in your head, you can replay those images. You remember. So it's not really a physical thing, but we ought to take it that seriously. So David sent and inquired of the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Isn't she, David, isn't this the guy? This is one of your mighty men. This is, this is his wife. And I, I, I marvel that his servants, this is just totally blows me away. You know, they, isn't that this... Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the daughter of Uriah the Hittite, and David sent his messengers. Nonetheless, it's like he couldn't be reasoned with. You know, when you get to the point where you realize that that's, that was God's safety net for David, his men that were surrounding him. Hey, David, that's Bathsheba. You know who she is? No, I know who she is. Go get her. <laughs> now he's got a group of men who know exactly what he was up to. And what blows me away is they were probably, they loved David so much and they were so loyal to David, they probably would take that to the grave because they respected and loved that man so much. But was it rape? And David sent messengers and, and took her and she came to him and he lay with her for she was cleansed from her impurity and she returned to her house. This was not a rape. There's no talk about a rape. Evidently, it was consensual. But was David abusing his authority? You better believe he was as the king of Israel. I mean, what lady in Israel, if they saw David looking at her? Certainly, she knew where David's palace was, right next to hers, her husband's. 
and the rooftop patio? What was she doing bathing in unveiled eyeshot of David at any time? I mean, there wasn't even like a, 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 a screen or some kind of thing, a, a partition. And again, not to lean too heavily on this, okay? Um, the overwhelming fault in this is David. The vast majority of the blame here is David. But what happened here? And, and, and this, ladies, is good for you to consider too. She wasn't completely unculpable in this either. What was she doing unguarded, bathing like that on the top of her house, knowing that David's palace is right next door and he can see her at any time if he was just out there, at the very least have a partition? Did she secretly, and again, this is conjecture, but did she secretly, knowing that David was there too, he wasn't out with the troops, Everybody knew that. David was home. Did she secretly delight in David? You know, maybe not in a, in a lustful way like David was looking at her, but maybe she, obviously she admired him. But where was the discretion in her? And ladies, that's one thing I want to share with you because we're going to spend more time on David next week and we'll end here. But ladies, just be careful of how you dress and the things that you do because you have such an impact on men. You may not think you do. And some women, and let me just speak frankly here because I think we can. Some women, it's not a, they don't have a, a, a desire for men to look at them in that way. And yet other women do. And they know how to dress. They know how to do things to get men to look at them. And I imagine, I'm not a woman, obviously. I'm an XY chromosome. I'm very thankful for that. I'm a man. Hallelujah. Adam. <laughs> but um, but ladies, when the way you dress, the things that you do, you know exactly what you're doing. And I want to encourage you to think about that. The women in the world, they don't know these things. Or, or they know these things. They know the effect. And I'd imagine it is a kind of an ego trip, especially if you're a good-looking lady. Because there is, it feeds the ego, doesn't it? I mean, I, if I were a woman and all the men were looking at me, it would feed my ego, and I'd like, I'd like that attention, actually. Maybe not every woman does, but there are some women in the world that do. And I can't speak to the women in the world, but the women in the church. You know, are you, do you dress modestly? Are you really dressing and doing the things you do to, because you love your husband and you want to be attractive to him? Or is it still secretly you desire for other men to look at you too? You've got him and that's fine. But do you desire to have other lookers to feed that ego within us, to feed that pride within our hearts? And men do it as well. It's not just the ladies. But it's something that we have to be careful about. Right, Because we're all responsible for the way we hold ourselves, especially in the church. Because we don't want to stumble each other. right? Men, we don't want to stumble the ladies. But, and, and ladies, you don't want to stumble the men, especially single men. I remember one year, and I'll end with this because we're way past time here. This topic is huge. I remember one year, um, and I don't think she'd mind me saying this, I won't give her name. <laughs> but there was, a, there was a woman who came in, and it was very obvious. And um, the way she was dressed, and I remember an older woman in the church sat down next to her and basically got on her case a little bit. You know, because uh, she was a believer, but she came in and she was just dressed in such a way, it was very provocative. And this older woman was very nice about it, but she, you know, basically just told her, you know, honey, you really need to think about what you're, you know, how you're dressing. And let me tell you, that was that hard for her to sit down and say that? But, you know, there are times, ladies, when you've got to step up and do that. You know, you know your own kind better than men. And when you see a woman like that in the church, you don't have to be a, a, a mean and go after her with knives, but can you befriend her and talk to her and help her? to understand that maybe the attention that she's drawing is not the best kind, and certainly not in this place, right? We want to come and be undistracted, not be distracted, right? So 
I say all that, again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, but this is a topic that we can, I can get away with talking about this. And most of the time, it's the man's problem. We talk about the men's issues. But ladies, there's also a culpability here. It's a small one with Bathsheba compared to David's. Okay? Because David could have looked and he could have walked away. He could have resisted it. But he didn't. And Bathsheba could have not bathed on the roof. And she could have certainly put up at least a partition to show some sense of decorum and uh, what's the word I want? Modesty, yes. <laughs> so let's be careful about that. Let's be careful about that. We'll finish this uh, chapter um, uh, next week. And, and certainly in chapter 12. There's a lot here in these two chapters that we, we need to look at. And it's uncomfortable, but it's one of the worst times in, in, in David's life. And it would be wrong for us not to look at it and really examine our hearts in it. Because um, it is the thing. Adultery in our culture right now, even with the church, is destroying people. Destroying families right now more than ever. And so it's something, guys and gals, that we got to look at. And we've got to be honest, and we need to repent. We need to repent. Guys, if you're looking at stuff that you shouldn't be looking at, that's adultery. Ladies, if you're thinking and fantasizing about that young guy across the street, you need to repent. Whatever it is, we all need to repent and keep that vessel that we hold honest and pure before God. Amen? Let's stand now that everybody's uncomfortable. <laughs> oh, Lord, we just do, uh, we come before you, Lord, and uh, Lord, I know that this is a, a, a topic that's really difficult, but yet it is, again, the elephant in the room. And so, Lord, help us as, as people in the church, Lord, to not be afraid to um, look at these things, and Lord, help us to repent. Lord, maybe none of us in this room have committed adultery in the physical sense, but we have in another sense, in our hearts. And Lord, it always begins in the heart. And then if it left unchecked, it does become something else. It's just a matter of time and opportunity. So Lord, help us, Lord, and help us to be more concerned about you and your holiness and, and what you've done for us. And rather than be thinking about what the devil is thinking, Lord, we don't care about him. You take care of him, Lord. We just want to have our eyes focused on you. But Lord, we also need to be vigilant and sober. And so help us to do that, Lord, this week. And, uh, and just have your way in us, Lord. Thank you for loving us. And thank you for cleansing us. And thank you for forgiving us when we cry out to you, when we express to you the deepest, darkest things of our souls, that you never, never cast us away. But you rather you put your arms around us and you are so unlike anybody else in the world, Lord. There, there's truly no one like you, Jesus. There's no one like you, God. You alone are sovereign. You're beautiful. You're wonderful. You're glorious. You're... Words that can't even describe who you are. Words that where language can't even be invented to describe the beauty and the glory of who you are, Lord. Help us to be captured and raptured by these things. And may it build a holy fire in us, God, that we would obey you from the heart with simplicity. How we thank you in Jesus' name.